Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening, and thank you for listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on this Tuesday evening. Welcome to another exciting, informative, interactive episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens, sitting behind the broadcast desk, and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.31, and we are honored that you've taken the time to listen to the program. Even tonight's episode, we will be discussing a topic that was suggested by a listener, and we're very thankful when there are suggestions. We want this program to be as practical as possible for you, and the best way to be practical is to discuss things that are on your mind. Pastor We're going to start out tonight with going back to a question that a caller last week had in relation to Proverbs chapter 31, verses 3 and 4, 31, 4 and 5. And I will pull that up here. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5 says, It is not for kings, O Limel, it is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Yeah, I think the the interpretation we gave last week, I think I said I needed to do a little bit more investigation because I think he went on to verse number six as well. Okay, uh, let me read yeah, that. Yeah. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Yeah, I think he's seeing a contradiction between the two because I think, you know, the Bible doesn't really endorse the use of alcoholic beverage as a, a drink, basically. And I think the fact that they said, don't give it to kings and then I'll give it to, I think that's where the problem lays. Uh, the first part of it, of course, is that um, we all know that alcohol affects the memory and we also know that it impairs judgment. And consequently, the first section has to do with the fact that because the king at that time was not just the the um, royal leader, but he also made judgments on matters, uh, just like people came to Solomon to ask advice and counsel. Uh, so he was a, also a decision-making individual in terms of uh, consequences. So um, he's here saying that if you use the um, alcoholic beverage or you use a strong drink, uh, the likelihood that if he uses that, it's going to cause him to have memory problems and impair his judgment, and consequently have a miscarriage of justice. So I think we understand that part of it. It's like, it's like he's saying, don't give a judge uh, become an alcoholic or be given to be addicted to alcohol because it'll impair his judgment. He can't have cases argued before him. 
when his mind is not totally together because he's inebriated and under alcoholic use. So that's what he's talking about, the miscarriage of justice and the king, because of his role in making judicial judgments as well, he's uh, saying not to give it to, to the king. In regards to the other part of it, uh, he said, but uh, give it strong drink uh, to, to him who's ready to perish. Uh, for my very quick uh, investigation of this, uh, it seems as though that it's thinking in terms of it not being used as a beverage, but as an anesthesia. It's like a person who is going to um, the pain of death, or going to face the, the death, or it's going to go some kind of emotional distress. Uh, it seems as though alcohol at that period of time was used uh, almost like a medicinal purpose to to fill that gap. You know, we, today we've got different forms of medicine we can take. A person is depressed, we can give them antidepressants. A person is, is faced with something, go to a psychiatrist, and you can be given um, medication that will bring your um, your mind back into balance, dealing with neurotransmitters. And this is what um, it's believed that was used uh, in the Old Testament for medicinal purposes to help person go into pain and anguish. You know, it's almost like what Paul said to Timothy, don't take water any longer, but add wine uh, to the, the, again, because it's believed that um, Timothy had some kind of a stomach problem, and this was kind of, kind of medicinal use of the of the uh, alcoholic beverage. But in Scripture, uh, it's not recommended that you use um, strong drink as a, a beverage like how we people socialize with that. Um, and of course, the different types of wine in the Bible. There's some that didn't have any alcoholic content. There's some that did have a, a, a alcoholic content. But the the level today that we have it uh, is far in excess of what it would have been there normally because we ferment it for a much longer period and we kind of con- cause it great, greater concentration. So there's no real contradiction here. It's actually don't allow a king to become so. Um, uh, drunk, as it were, with use of alcohol, that he can't make solid judgment. On the other hand, you've got a person who's going to die, who's going to deep emotional distress, and he needs some kind of relief. And in those days, apparently, that was the only available means of acting, having an anesthesia, and that's what was given. Our next question comes from Trinidad and Tobago, and is very practical and relevant for all of us, no matter where we are listening. It says, Pastor, I have a question. In Deuteronomy 10, 18, and 19, it speaks of God's love for the stranger, yet tells us to love the stranger. Within recent times, there has been an influx of Venezuelans coming to my country and other countries due to the unrest in their country. Most citizens aren't in agreement of these Venezuelans living here. Is Deuteronomy 10, 18, and 19 applicable to the context of allowing strangers to our country, and are we to love the stranger? And to put it all in context, let me read those verses. Deuteronomy 10, 18 to 19 says, He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Verse 19, Love ye therefore the stranger. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. What are your thoughts, Pastor? Well, the first thing I would like to admit is that immigration is a hot-button issue for most countries uh, and is rooted in uh, four basic fears. Um, Citizens uh, fear, for example, the economic fear where there's a threat that jobs will be taken over by people who immigrate and come into the country. There's also that uh, when you have too many people coming, it puts pressure on the social, medical, and the uh, educational services of the country because you know got to expand that, and then of course there's also the political part of it. Uh, there are p- 
party politics get involved in this matter. And generally speaking, uh, if a party in power allows immigration, uh, chances are that in the future, those who remain within that country are going to vote for the party, allow them to uh, become immigrants. The opposition, of course, fears that there's going to be electoral fraud. They fear that uh, the opposition would, would lose voter, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and therefore the possibility of getting into power is that mar- far remote. The other thing, of course, we've got all kind of naturalistic fe- nationalistic fears. Um, always concerned about too much foreign influence, uh, foreigners taking over uh, sometimes. Uh, those who have a long pedigree of belonging to a family, uh, a country, have it even difficulty when a person naturalized and become a citizen to consider to be a full citizen. There's still that hesitation. So we understand that. But then also there's also a, a racial dimension to a lot of this as well. Countries are defined by populations. And it's like some countries want to remain, uh, I suppose, African countries want to remain black countries, European want to remain European, and uh, Indian, etc. So I do think that there's a, a, a racial element as well. So you don't want to dilute the population so that there is, uh, you know, the majority uh, eventually goes into the minority. I think that there's a concern there. So I can understand all of these, these matters. But all countries, uh, I would agree, need some kind of security at the borders, and I think they ought to be able to vet and select people who are allowed to enter the country for several reasons. Of course, the drug problem, the security problem, the, uh, the use of contraband, uh, the hum- human trafficking, and of course, you have the health concerns now with the virus, so I can understand all those, those matters. But let's put it in perspective. Caribbean countries are, are countries of, of immigrants. I mean, you go any part of the world, you find Caribbean people. So the other countries have opened their doors uh, to Caribbean people, whether it be America or Europe or England or, or whatever. Uh, people have been very generous in allowing Caribbean people to be there. Um, and when it comes to Venezuela now, uh, I think Venezuela is a kind of a difficult uh, situation. Um, the experimentation and socialism under Chavez and then Mudaro has now brought the country to its knees and it's now going to a time of economic disaster, and, and it doesn't seem as though it's going to improve. And it means a lot of um, Venezuelans are now leaving the country, and they're trying to... They need hope, they need some kind of security. Uh, so you're looking at a situation where you've got this exodus of people who are trying to, to, to get their bearings, and I think we can understand that. And don't forget, too, that because of the... Uh, the uh, the Carib, uh, Caribbean Carib uh, Petrol Agreement, mm-hmm. the Caribbean has benefited enormously from from uh, from that. Trinidad, of course, has its own oil resources and might not have needed what Venezuela provides. I'm saying all of that to say this, that in the context of what is going on, I, I think that compassion is needed at this time within the Caribbean. How much of that compassion and the limit of that compassion may be the issue but I, I believe that when you go to Scripture, uh, there's no doubt that we should love our neighbor. There's no doubt that we should love people in distress and try to help them. So that is a moral responsibility given to the believer. However, we can't take what was given to Israel, which was a theocracy, and apply it to a, 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 the democracy that we, we have today. So it really is not cross-applicable. But the principle is there. Uh, that you should care for people, that you should help people if you can, and I think you should do that within certain uh, limitations. So I don't see anything wrong at this point in time where the Caribbean islands are trying to help the Venezuelans. Remember the way uh, history goes. 
Today is Venezuela, tomorrow it might be Trinidad, it might be Jamaica, nobody knows what will happen in the future. And I think that we ought to be compassionate. Listen, we're all living on one planet, and we've all been given a certain piece of real estate by God's providence. And I think that we need to understand that there are times when nations have to help other nations and people have to help other people. But I do understand the concern of being overwhelmed by too many people coming in. And I would say that that is a judgment of your country. And, but I do feel that compassion is necessary. And it, can, though it doesn't have to be something permanent. It can be temporary until something is restored uh, in Venezuela. We don't know when that's going to happen because Maduro has kind of dug in. Uh, so I don't know when that will happen. But I think it's, it's, it's okay for people. The other thing is this, you know, as Christians, we have an opportunity when those people come into our country to reach them with the gospel. When they return to their country, to carry the gospel back with them. So it's nothing wrong in being a melting pot in the Caribbean. So from an evangelistic uh, Christian perspective, it may be an opportunity for us to carry the gospel and uh, to reach people to gospel. So don't let your um, nationalism and uh, other aspects of it um, cause you to lose the opportunity to show compassion at this point in time. Uh, we all need it sometime. You might need it in the future. The, uh, the Venezuelans need it now. Let's be uh, put a helping hand to them at this stage uh, uh, in our history. Pastor, would it be appropriate to apply the teachings of Jesus about the Samaritans and caring? Because there was some hard feelings between the Jews and the Samaritans. Could you apply that? And uh, people coming into your country, most likely you probably aren't going to have as strong of feelings as you would against, as the Jews would have against the Samaritans. So surely we should welcome them. No, I think that's a biblical principle. But again, we can't expect government to operate on those principles. Okay. Uh, um, uh, but I do feel that people within government who are believers should take those principles bring to bear upon the conscience of the nation to explain to the nation why we're doing what we're doing. And there's nothing wrong in my judgment. You know, most Caribbean countries uh, would claim to be Christian, yeah. even though they're Christian in name. And I think that's a good good application because you're talking about Samaritans who are half-breed. Uh, when the Assyrians took them, took the Jews captive in 722 and took them to Syria, they carried Jews to Syria and then they took Assyrians and brought them into Israel. And it was the 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 um, the intermarriage between the Assyrians and the Jews that created this what might be called a mongrel group uh, that the Jews found very offensive, and that's why there was this hostility between the the Jews and the Samaritans. Never really accepted them as full Jews because they were half Assyrian and half Jews, uh, but yet. In the parable, as a matter of fact, in all the parables where a Samaritan is mentioned, he's mentioned favorable. And it's very significant that the Lord, um, the examples that they use of people who were negative in their response was the, the, the priest and the Levite, all Jews, but it was a Samaritan who showed compassion. And, uh, and it's very, very clear that that's a very good il- illustration, that even though you may have even differences, racial differences or historical differences, uh, as believers, we reach across the board to others because we all share the same humanity. We all have equal value. So I think that's a good application. And I do feel that Christians within the government of Trinidad uh, should appeal to the, uh, the populace and let them understand why we're doing what we're doing and let them understand it's not just a political maneuver. It's a genuine humanitarian effort we're making to try to help these people. I think that would be very helpful. I found it very interesting that you mentioned the fact that you reach them with the gospel and they come to your country and then they can return Uh, A few years ago, I had an opportunity to go to the country of Jordan, and it was right when uh, a lot of refugees from Syria and Iraq were in Jordan, and to hear the testimonies of people who were nominal Christians, they weren't born again, 
in Iraq or in Syria, and war forced them to become refugees in Jordan. They heard the gospel, they got saved, and now with smiles on their face, tears in their eyes, they said, I'm so thankful that this happened so that I heard the gospel, and they were training at a Bible school to go back. Yeah, Nathan, that also happens with the American soldiers, the fact that they've got many Christian soldiers in the American army, and you have chaplains. And there are times when, even though when America goes to war, there are a lot of conversions as a result of, of Christian soldiers interacting with even the enemy. So, you know, it's a, we got to understand that um, our goal and our aim, whatever happens in life, is, is that we really uh, have a salvific purpose, and that is to reach men and women. And I understand the concerns of um, foreign invasion, taking over jobs, all those kind of things I understand. Uh, but at the same time, we got to express, uh, got to be concerned for people and, and show compassion. The other thing too, you know, when a, when another uh, people come in and mix, they have a lot of advantages. Uh, and when I say that, for example, sometimes they bring skills uh, to a country that wasn't there. They bring certain cultural aspect that can be integrated into a new culture. Uh, sometimes they bring a different, a new work ethic. Uh, and you know we've got laissez faire here in, in the Caribbean, very very laid back people. Um, Venezuelans are a, a, a lot different. You see them on the road selling, even in Antigua. You see that even though they're here, they they, they sell, put up stalls, stuff like that, very quickly. So it might be helpful to other countries when there is a addition to this different uh, culture group. So uh, it's not all negative. There's a lot of positive to it as well. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the island of Antigua. The name of the program is That's Truth, and the name of the individual who you heard teaching is that of Pastor David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Antigua. Pastor, you mentioned that we should have uh, a salvation focus. What is true salvation? Is it being a church member? Is it being baptized? Well, I think, um, when not think, I know that when you go into Scripture, it's very, very simple. Uh, genuine salvation has to do with putting your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There are two um, basic requirements. One is that you have to repent. Salvation is about sin. It's about delivering a person from uh, the guilt of sin and also from the power of sin. When you come in to, for, for salvation, you're coming for deliverance. You're not coming to, to, uh, to deliver us from a headache or from poverty. Uh, you're coming to be delivered from sin. That's the main barrier between man and God. That's what the whole Christian faith is about. Uh, and, and so if you want to talk about uh, what is genuine, authentic uh, salvation, it has to do with repentance of your sins and putting your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The church, the other things that are involved, baptism, confirmation, all these are issues, these are issues that follow salvation, uh, but it has nothing to do with the actual getting into the kingdom. We get into the kingdom by faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repenting of our sins. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air by calling one two six eight. 462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 268 1454 Pastor, we have a number of questions that have come in from St. Kitts. Good night, Pastor. Could you please explain what is an outer body experience and three main divisions of occults? Well, um, I have never had an out-of-body experience, but I can tell you personally that I, I know of a, a, a pastor who uh, has shared his pre-conversion experience with me and uh, explained to me, quite frankly, that he had um, had that experience himself. He's actually done it. 
and this is when he was in his secular field of work and I don't want to go into details because he might be listening to be very honest with you he just told me that um, the pressure of work was extremely difficult for him and he got this book called TM Meditation he found it in the library and began reading it and began to, began to do some of the things that were suggested and I have no reason whatsoever I would almost put my head on the block for this, this particular pastor uh, I have no doubt in my mind that what he told me is correct, that he was actually to, able to leave um, his body and go into his workplace, do his work, and come back. But he was exhausted when he came back. And he, 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 I don't want to go into too much detail, but this guy is a, still a pastor, a, a godly man. I have no doubt in my mind that he had that kind of an experience. So it seems... Uh, I know it's difficult for people who might be listening to think this sounds crazy, but we're dealing in a spirit world. Man has a spiritual dimension to himself. And if you talk to people who are involved in the occult and, and stuff like that, they'll tell you that these things actually happen. Uh, I have people of counsel uh, who has family who have done that as well. One case, I can think of a, a young man who told me that well, his father was his father's a shaman, and he could actually move from one country to the other, mm. and was trying to get him into the same thing, but he got converted. So I, I don't have an explanation of why and how it happens, but I have no doubt in my mind uh, from the, um, the actual testimony of a pastor that I respect very greatly, and I don't think he would mislead me. I think he's genuine and authentic. I do feel that these things happen, and that's why the Bible warns not to get involved in the cult. There are things that are forbidden by God. Not that they can't happen, but God has put them off limits. And when we intrude into those areas, we are going against uh, what God's counsel, and there are consequences because when you get into that realm, you're into a spiritual realm where now that's the realm of evil forces, evil powers, and you can become subjected to those powers. That's why God warns again and again not to go in that direction. What was the other question, Nathan? Uh, name the three divisions of cults. Well, the three uh, main divisions of the occult, uh, there is spiritism. Uh, this has to do with contact with spirits, especially the spirit of the dead. There is divination, uh, which has to do with the matter of obtaining uh, knowledge about the future using occult practice. And then there is sorcery, where you're trying to manipulate forces not by human means, but by supernatural means to get things done uh, for yourself and done to other people. So those are the three basic things, the, the spiritism, uh, divination, and uh, magic or sorcery. That's what it's called. Next question is, Go ahead. what was it like to have a man-child in the Jewish culture in the Bible days? Well, I think if you read the Old Testament right to the New Testament, it's very, very clear that the Messiah was going to be a male. He was going to be the Son of God, and he was going to come to uh, a certain tribe. And that was the aspiration of every single Jewish uh, mother. She was hoping that she would be the one that would bear the Messiah. So you can imagine the the excitement of when a male child would be born. And that's why there's so much emphasis in the Old Testament that even the genealogy is linked from the male aspect of it. Even the inheritance is often linked from the male aspect of it because everything goes to the, the male in the Old Testament because the Messiah one day will come and, of course, all sovereignty will rest upon his shoulder, the government, etc., etc. So that was the ambition of every mother that would have a Jewish child, the idea that 
she could possibly be the one that would give birth to the Messiah. Uh, so that's expectancy, expectancy uh, kept that hope alive, and of course, it enlivened the spirit and gave them a spirit of optimism and uh, a desire that they would be the one to bear the Messiah. So does that mean that men are more important than women? No, I don't think men are more important than men. When it comes to the matter of equality, uh, the Bible makes it quite clear that we all bear the same image of God. So it's not a question of equality. But uh, God, in his sovereignty, selects. And uh, I am not here to to direct God how to select. But clearly, when God even created, I, I can't repeat this again and again, the order of creation is not accidental. Is very, very clear in the New Testament argument that because God has created man first, God intended man to play the role of leadership. There's no doubt about that. In the home, in the church, and even in government. But it's not limited to um, the government. Is not because you also find that uh, Deborah was one of the, the leaders because Barak would not perform its function. And there is an indication in the, in the Bible that uh, one of the ways that God judges a nation is that it um, the male leadership is no longer prominent and it begins to be led by, by, by women. There's no doubt about that. And uh, that, that is taught in the Bible. And it's clear from Scripture that leadership role really belong to men and women play a subordinate role. But there are always exceptions to the rule. We all know that. We've had some great women leaders, uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Eugenia Charles in, in uh, Dominica, called the Iron Woman as well. And, uh, and uh, you know, there have been others as well. But generally speaking, um, male leadership is what God recognizes, and that was God's initial plan. I still think it's his plan. But as a nation deteriorates and men fail to perform, fulfill their role, women by default begin to take over and not sometimes because, even in the home, it's not that the woman wants to take the leadership role, but you've got men who are so reckless in their leadership and so negligent in their leadership that that vacuum is filled um, by a woman and then the man begins to complain. The problem is that he is reneged on his duties and now she's just fulfilling his job. The problem is once she gains that control, it's hard to, to let go of it because she doesn't want to go back to the situation it was before. So a lot of it has to do with, with male failing in their responsibilities. But uh, there's no, no difference between male and female in terms of dignity and value before God, just that they have different roles. Pastor, there are three more questions that have come in from St. Kitts, and these are getting a little more involved. Yeah, I, I saw the other three questions that came in today, got them today, and I think that he's getting to the realm of metaphysics, wanting to know about uh, whether spirits occupy space and time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's some other more serious questions uh, that I need to give some serious thought to. I don't want to rush into to give an answer and then have to retract. Um, so I would like to address the other three questions next time, and I don't want to pretend to knowledge I don't have at this point in time. I put those on our list. So for the individual from St. Kitts who sent in those questions, thank you for sending them in, and we will start out, Lord willing, if the rapture doesn't happen before next Tuesday's episode, we will start out with your three remaining questions. You are listening to That's Truth. It's a live interactive call-in program that happens every Tuesday here in the Eastern Caribbean. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at our website at www.radiolighthouse.org. And you can also, for this program, join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your comments, your questions, your suggested topics. And if you would like to call in and be put live on the air, the phone line is open and waiting for you. The phone number is one 
268-462-7420. Give that to you again. Call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 268 7821454 We have two more questions that have come in so far tonight. Uh this one is coming here from uh, Antigua or Barbuda. Good night, pastor. Do you have any practical steps for a young single Christian woman to offer in relation to interacting with males, and then there's a little explanation here, I personally do not have a problem being serious and keeping distance. However, I also don't like to come off mean. This sometimes confuses me, and I can either come off too harsh or interact pleasantly and then overthink everything when I get home. I generally keep my distance. However, I always have questions or encouragement for my pastors or another brother in the church. I am hoping... The practical advice that you give can help me from overthinking and can cause me to be a little less awkward and worried mentally. Perhaps it's time an older woman of God helped from time to time because the younger generation of women can benefit greatly. I quite enjoy the program and shamelessly binge. God bless you both. I wish I had some more time to really deal with this. Maybe I'll deal with it with a different program, but let me just mention a few things very quickly. Uh, the first thing I would like to say uh, in terms of your interaction with males is try to settle from a biblical perspective what are some of the principles that you want to you want to regulate your like your your social life or your dating life with set down some principles that you are not going to violate don't wait until your emotions begin to play tricks with you then to try to come up with some kind of criteria in other words make decisions when the light is on when the light goes out uh, you can make some very stupid decisions. So now that you are totally disengaged in terms of having an emotional attachment to any young man, it would seem at this point in time, sit down and be, be before God and, and think this thing through. Maybe get, um, um, uh, you know, set up some principles, um, places you wouldn't go, things you wouldn't do, for example. Um, I think that's important. Um contact, limiting any kind of contact because I can suggest to you that once this contact uh, it, it goes from holding hands to hugging, to kissing, to petting and it goes down the way, so you've got to stop that at some point in time, otherwise eventually you find that you can't stop the the adrenaline that begins to flow and then before you know it you find yourself in some kind of immoral act so I would suggest you to be watch very carefully this concept of contact and, and and by the way, men know that, and that I'm speaking to you from a male perspective. Your weakness um, is, is going to be contact and conversation. So you're going to have to watch those two things, conversation and what the person is saying. And then certain topics you will not discuss um, if you're going through dating. There's certain questions, especially when it comes up to sexual questions and that kind of thing. You need to make sure that we don't get in that, that, that direction. Uh, it's only when you get an engagement you can talk about those things if you're looking towards marriage. But those are issues that you need to be very, very careful about. The other thing is that remember that once you get involved intimately with somebody, your relationship is virtually over. And what I mean by that, it now becomes a physical relationship. You meet uh, for physical um, experiences. You don't meet to talk and discuss. It always ends up physical. 
And it is wisdom to understand that, that if you really want a meaningful relationship with somebody, you must avoid physical intimacy. As long as you have that physical intimacy, it becomes the predominant aspect of your relationship and it begins to destroy everything else. You never get anywhere to any depth understanding of what your person is like. So th- that's some very, very, the other very interesting thing you said just a moment ago uh, in, the, in the thing there has to said to all the women. You know, I'm teaching that in the book of Titus. And Titus specifically deals with the fact that it's the role of older women who've had experience dealing with men coming up in life to teach the younger women um, these matters. Uh, that role has been delegated. It's interesting that Paul is writing to Titus, who is the pastor and responsible for the Church of Crete. And he says to Titus, this task of teaching and training the younger women is a task you delegate to the senior women. What person better able to tell a young girl about the, tri- the traps and the, the subtleties of male aggression? Uh, than a woman who has been through it herself to warn them and to prepare them for that. So I do feel that the role uh, for older women is to bring women under younger women and mentor them and train them and teach them and warn them and guide them in these matters so that they don't fall into the same trap that they themselves fell in uh, in the past. Uh, so I think that's a simple immediate counsel I can give but it's something that um, I probably will look at another program to go into more depth and I hope that somehow the little suggestions just given you prove helpful Thank you for sending in that question. Pastor, she mentions that at times she has encouragements or questions for her pastors or another brother in the church Is there ever a time that you should be, is it usually appropriate uh, if you're in a group setting, there's others around, you're not in some dark corner, uh, to approach as a young woman, to approach the pastor and to ask a question or to approach another brother in the church? It depends. Uh, I, I would suggest that when you when any kind of male-female contact, uh, it needs to try to be as public as possible, mm-hmm. but public in the point where you're not asking so everybody can hear, but at least people can see. Right. The danger of privacy is that Privacy leads to emotional attachment, especially a person seem to be able to answer questions, able to provide answers, and who seem to be very affable and friendly, etc., etc. There's a very strange chemistry begins to happen, and that's why you need to be very, very careful. Um, but I generally would um, suggest that if a pastor is going to deal with a female along that line, my counsel would be that if he's in an office, the secretary should be there, the window should be open, the door, a glass should be there, whatever it is. You have to protect yourself. I'm not saying that there's, uh, you know, all pastors are evil, whatever it is, but we have to be very careful when we're dealing between male and female. I think it is proper a pastor finds that a young lady is asking certain questions and need guidance, I think that his wife should be the one to really be the, the, the getting there and to be a friend, befriend her, become close to her so that she can turn to his wife to ask those kind of questions. I think male, male dealing with male, female dealing is far much safer not that there should not be uh, interaction between male and female, but I think you've got to guard this thing. Too much, too many things are happening today in that in that, in that realm, uh, and there's nothing wrong asking a, a young man uh, who you have respect for and who has good Christian virtues and who is knowledgeable of Scripture. Nothing wrong asking questions of that nature. But be very, very careful that your attempt to ask questions is not seen as an opening door to a relationship. Uh, if you can avoid it at the same time, be very watchful. Thank you again for sending in that question. 
Uh, time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.07. Pastor, a question coming from a listener in the UK. Pastor, what part of the being of a person would be unconscious, unconscious in such an outer body experience? Well, what I can tell you that happened is that the, the person, um, I can only tell you what they've told me, basically, that the body is, is there, but the spirit is gone. It's like you can, you know, they can rise above the ceiling and see their body. So the body is still in an unconscious state, quite frankly, but the, the spirit is gone. So that is the only answer I can give. Now, just remember, I've never dilly-dallied in this, don't want to dilly-dally in it. I think it's a, one of those areas that uh, there's a lot of speculation was involved. But I can just share with you what I believe an honest, godly man has told me actually happened and what he actually used to do. He, Of course, he no longer practices that, but he has told me that in Kong. And I don't have any reason to doubt whatsoever this happened. So... I don't have all the answers to those kind of things because I've never investigated the extent of it, but it really happens. Hey, WhatsApp question from St. Martin. Good night, Pastor. Can you speak about why certain books were removed from the Bible? And we are listening in St. Martin. Thank you for the program, and God bless you. Well, certain books were removed from the, not removed from the Bible, never part of the Bible. Uh, the, the, for example, the apocryphal books that were included in the, um, the, the Catholic Bible, it is true that they were included in the Septuagint, but they were never included in the Jewish canon of scriptures, uh, which is something completely different. But most of these books were removed from the Bible because they, number one, some of them have anachronisms. That has to do with um, historical errors. Some of them um, have errors even in terms of, of mentioning um, certain doctrines that are not in the Bible. That's where a lot of prayer to, to, uh, to, 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 to saints and praying to Mary and those kind of things, that's where a lot that came in, purgatory, all of that came in because of these extra books that were added. So, And that's why, by the way, some groups include those extra books because that is part of their doctrine. But they're not part, they were never part of the canon of, of Old Testament scriptures, nor were they can, part of the canon of New Testament scriptures. But a lot of them have to do with false doctrine, a lot of them have to do with historical errors, and you cannot include a book in, in God's Word, which is an infallible book and inerrant, where you have historical errors, archaeological errors, and where you have also um, um, theological errors. Uh, God is not the author of confusion. God is the author of truth, not error. So that's why a lot of those books were included. The other thing is that there was no, um, there's no connection with any apostle, for example, when it comes to books that were included from the New Testament. Uh, there was no, no linkage between the person who wrote the book and the apostle. The other thing, they were written very late after the New Testament canon, so they should not be part of the New Testament canon. And you know when books were written late, by the way, it has to do sometimes with the type of writing, whether they use capitals or whether they use cursive. Uh, you could know the kind of... Uh, parchment or texture of the material that was used you can always define that and also uh, if you find it on certain pottery you would know the historical period when that pottery was so a lot of these books were written way after the first century and so they were not, not during the apostolic period so those are four 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 or five different reasons why they're not but if you want a more extensive exhausted look at it there's a book by a guy called Neisler and Gitz uh, Nitz, N-I-N-I-Z, uh, on the introduction to the Bible. You can probably go online and, and call it up. It's a, a fairly big book, um, uh, maybe five or 600 pages, but it is very useful. It goes into all of the details. It talks about these books that, that were never, that were not, were excluded. 
uh, and explain to you why they were excluded. The other one is Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He has two volumes, volume one and volume two. I forgot which volume contains that, but it also deals with books that are... I think it's volume one. Yeah, that deals with that as well. Uh, So there's solid biblical reasons uh, why these things were excluded. By the way, it's not that they don't have some spiritual truth. Uh, they do have spiritual truth but again uh, you cannot just have spiritual truth and that's not what the Bible is we believe the Bible is right historically archaeologically scientifically theologically and because the Bible has to be consistent the God of the Bible is the God of truth and that's what we're very concerned about you just said something there that I want to follow up on you said you believe the Bible is true scientifically so you believe that there was a literal flood? Of course, I think, and I don't even. I mean, the evidence for that is overwhelming. Well, if you read uh, John Morrison's the the flood, uh, which is the standard book now that explains that. I mean, quite frankly, the evidence. He is a brilliant scientist, uh, PhD, and who knows about uh, um, water mechanics and stuff like that. He is. If you read the book itself, the explanation that he gave and the 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 historic the uh, the scientific evidence that is there, I don't think there's any question that you can read that book without realizing that it was a world uh, worldwide flood. Uh, so I don't have any doubt about that. Um, Do you have any doubt about creation versus evolution? Of course not. Uh, as a matter of fact, I I, I am. To the point now where I do not think it's possible for anybody to be a Christian who don't believe in creation. That's the first. If there's no creator and there's no create, and by the way, to say that man was created by evolution is to displace Christ. Mm. God created this world through Jesus Christ, and you—that's the fundamental core uh, um, doctrine of the entire system of the Bible. If there's no creation, there's no need for redemption. There's no need for everything falls. So there's no doubt in my mind that man was created by God. Especially, evolution is the biggest. Uh, uh, pseudo-scientific host that I don't know how intelligent people gobbled it up and just believed it. Uh, and I think the church, Nathan, has compromised uh, to the extent where it has allowed for what is called theistic evolution, that God created by the process of evolution. But it's not what the Bible teaches, right? And of course, anytime you've got evolution, you've got to have death before sin. Mm-hmm. And the Bible said that sin brought death. So it cannot be correct. You've got to make a choice between creation or between evolution. You can't f- straddle defense and you can't hold to both. And in my judgment, uh, there can be no genuine faith in any person who does not embrace the creation story. I don't see how it's possible for that to happen. As you were talking about that, I just had a flashback to... Uh, a couple years ago when you were doing an episode on creation versus evolution and you were talking about, uh, I believe it was two brothers that were on their deathbed or at the end of their life were talking about why they pushed the theory of evolution and oh, it was yes. to get away the Huxley's, from it. The Huxley's, yeah. 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 I still remember that. If I, I remember the book right now you mentioned. There's a book. Uh, written by Ravi Zacharias called Can Man Live Without God? Okay. I have that book. That's where it is. Ravi pointed out that the Huxley brothers, uh, Julian Huxley and Aldous Huxley, that they finally admitted that the reason why they pushed evolution as a theory is because the theory, not the, 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 uh, the creation of uh, the idea of God and creation was an impediment to their immoral lifestyle. 
Mm. They knew they had to get rid of God in order to live immorally without a compunction of conscience. And they deliberately said that they advocated and pushed the evolutionary theory because it gave them a libertine philosophy where they can do as they please, live as immorally as they want to. So there's a reason for it as well, because the moment you believe in God, you know one thing, you're responsible and you're going to be held accountable. That begins to affect how you live because you're going to stand before God and give an account. And any time you bring God into the picture, there's morality, right? And, and and the people want to live as they please. Man is a rebel at heart. Man wants to live autonomously and independently, don't want to be held accountable to any anyone. As a result, this uh, forgery and this fakery and this pseudoscience called evolution has become popular with people because I think it's a moral issue. It's not an intellectual issue. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.15. If you have a question, the phone line is waiting for you. It is open. The number to call is 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you still want to send in a question or a suggested topic or a comment, go ahead and send it via WhatsApp or text message to 1-268-782-1400. Five, four. Or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. You can click on the Facebook Live video feed, comment your question. It'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Pastor, uh, let me just say something, yeah. Nathan. For example, nobody I would be accepted into membership in our church who would say to us, to me, or to the, um, I don't believe in creation. I mean, it's impossible. You can't become a member of a church if you don't believe in creation. That's the point I'm making. I mean, now if the church were to maintain a standard and hold to biblical truth, we wouldn't have all this confusion. But it's because there's such a diversity of opinion. People say, but this church believes this. The same thing, Nathan, goes along with the whole of morality. For example, no person who is an active, uh, practicing homosexual or lesbian could ever become a member of a Baptist church. No, they, they could have been in the past, they were that, and then they got converted. But not, no person in that role can become a member. And again, if the church will take a position, uh, a biblical position on issues, believe you me, a lot of the moral confusion that marked our times could be erased. But the church compromises, and as a result, the people are confused. Pastor, what was the name of the books that you gave in relation to the two volumes? That demands a verdict, volume one and two? Yes, I believe that. Evidence that demands a verdict, volume one and two by Josh McDowell. If you Google that online, you should be able to get that. You may be getting Kindle at a very cheap price <laughs> rather than buy a hard copy. And the other book was? The other book was an introduction to the Bible by Nitz and Geisler. Okay. We have a topic that was suggested a couple of weeks ago by a listener here in Antigua. I gave a little introduction to it last week. The importance of making wise decisions, especially as we get into the beginning of a calendar year. We started to discuss this topic, and then other questions came in last week, so we're going to get back to it this week. Pastor, could you put in kind of a perspective for us uh, decision-making, how important it is? Yeah, I I pointed out um, when I made my few introductory remarks last time that 
You know, uh, decision-making is just a standard part of life, and the reason for that is as long as we're alive, we've got to make choices, and choices involve making alternative uh, decisions in respect so that we can come to successful ends. So whether a person likes it or not, decision-making is something that's inescapable because it is part of our normal life. Fortunately for most of us, and uh, the decisions we normally make on a regular basis, they're very uh, trite, uh, they're uh, very uh, mundanely inconsequential, and most of them are quite generally uh, trivial that we need to make and very simple and straightforward about work, about home, about church, about, ho- about school, recreation, etc. The problem we have, however, is that there are times when we come to making decisions where the answer is not so obvious and what course of action we should take. So we need to have some kind of a framework of principles that would help us adjudicate what's the best course to take uh, in the context of the situation we're dealing with. And that's where uh, we have to have some method of, of decision-making. And when we come to this kind of a quandary or a blind, uh, we turn to find wisdom that is needed. It's, by the way, it's not just about smartness. A person can have intellectual smartness. Uh, but it's not just about intellectual smartness. There is the biblical concept of divine wisdom that is needed as well. So I think the the, the, the key primary um, element in this whole decision-making is to have wisdom to know what best course of action to take. In relation to, before we jumped into this topic, uh, you were talking about how the church needs to take a stand on creation and homosexuality and things that the Bible teaches. Listener is asking, but Pastor, we're in the year 2021. We've got to be relevant to the world that we live in. Look, we've got to make a decision. Are we going to be uh, true to Scripture? Are we going to try to be political wreck or uh, um, contemporary or relevant? The most relevant uh, thing that we can do is to hold the Scripture. The Bible is always relevant. The, the Bible is transcultural. Uh, the biblical principles are transcendent principles. They apply across the board. So we don't have to compromise in order to be relevant because the Bible is relevant. There's not an issue that we are faced with today that there's not some biblical principle that would bring us out of the darkness we're in. The problem that we're in, the darkness and the confusion we're in because we fail to understand that we have uh, transcendent principles to guide us out of this darkness. When we surrender Scripture, we surrender truth. And when we surrender truth, we enter into the realm of darkness. And that's where we are right now. And the only way out is to return to truth, which brings light to bring us out of our darkness. You mentioned, back to our topic of decision-making, you mentioned the importance of wisdom and not just knowledge. Can you expound on that and explain how that fits into the biblical perspective? Yeah, because when you come to the idea of wisdom uh, in Scripture, especially the book of Proverbs, for example, uh, you'll find that there are three uh, distinct attributes that Proverbs and Solomon uses again and again that that almost encompasses this concept of wisdom. For example, it talks about knowledge. Uh, knowledge is uh, is what you might call raw data. It's the like the mind filing system where we store our knowledge and we store our, our data. It's about facts, uh, and we get those facts from schooling, from reading. We get them from television. We get them from listening to people. So part of wisdom is knowledge, but knowledge is not 
wisdom in, in its in its in its uh, totality, but an aspect of wisdom is knowledge. So when you're dealing with w- wisdom in the Bible, the knowledge aspect is emphasized uh, as well. But that's only one aspect of it because uh, having knowledge is not enough. You have to be able to interpret that knowledge to see how that knowledge can be used. And that's where the next word that comes into play in the, in the New Testament concept of wisdom is understanding. Understanding now has to do with grasping the meaning uh, of knowledge and to know exactly how that can be applied. So it's more about insight into the data you have and how it can become useful. Uh, and again, uh, in to have this understanding it has to do with using your personal experience using the uh, personal values observing what other people have said insights people give but also spiritual insights so we've come from knowledge where you've got factual data raw material uh, what you might call intelligence basically but then you have to have understanding how to take that raw material and understand how best to use it and how to interpret that and then the third thing that you'll find that uh, Proverbs talks about the third aspect of knowledge uh, wisdom is discretion and uh, discretion has to do with the decision phase of wisdom uh, it has to do with the matter of discriminating uh, between the data you have and what you've interpreted and then how to use that. So it has to do with uh, making the best choice having uh, got the raw data, uh, interpret the raw data, what it means, and then how to best to use that, that information to accomplish your purpose. Uh, so it has a matter of evaluating the, uh, the material you have and knowing how to apply it. Uh, so it has to do with how and when to apply your knowledge that you've interpreted and how uh, the relevance of it to your situation. So those are the three elements of wisdom. So wisdom is not just about having raw knowledge, information. Everybody has that. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who have a lot of knowledge, but they, they don't know how to interpret the knowledge, how to use the knowledge. And then discretion is selecting from all these different interpretations what's the best application in, in a given situation. Pastor, we have a question that has come in from an individual in Antigua. They say, I heard on the air Brother Nathan asked people to pray for the Radio Lighthouse ministry. If Brother Nathan can ask individuals to pray for the Lighthouse, why can't we ask Mary to pray for the Lighthouse for us? Isn't that the same thing? What do you think, Pastor? Who, who Mary? You mean? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, look, when Nathan or anybody asks you to pray for Karen, he's speaking to people who are alive, uh, believers who are currently alive. Mary is dead, and uh, we don't pray to Mary. We don't ask Mary to pray for us because Mary can't pray for us, okay? We're to pray to God directly, and when he asks people to pray for the Radio Lighthouse, he's asking believers to do what all believers have done before, interceding on behalf of a ministry. So the living is praying for the living. It's not a dead person praying for the living. Uh, the Bible makes it quite clear, very, very clear, that we don't ask any person other than Christ uh, in heaven uh, to intercede before God for us. Uh, Mary has no role in, in terms of her intercessory role. That has been a, a myth created by the Catholic Church, and it's actually what you might call Mariolatry. It's actually idolatry. There's no way in Scripture we're ever told to pray to any person other than God. So he's asking believers to pray to God on the behalf of the radio station. That's what he's doing. Now, you mentioned, you said that Mary is dead, but aren't those who teach that Mary 
went to heaven kind of sort of like Enoch? Well, uh, and is uh, that in the Bible? No, that's not in the scripture. It's called Mary's assumption that Mary never physically, when she died, she was taken directly to heaven. Okay. That's a myth. There's no, no support for that. Like, uh, and they also uh, talk about Mary has been enthroned queen of heaven. Uh, and there's a church in Barbados that has her. Uh, forgot the name of the church, but she's there's no queen in heaven. There's only a king in heaven. What has happened really is that um, whether people are prepared to face it or not, I would recommend that they find a book called The Two Babylons by a, a Reverend Hislop. If you want to know what has really happened to the Catholic Church and how a lot of these things enter the Catholic Church, I would recommend you get that book and read it for yourself. And you see the parallelisms that were in paganism, how it was introduced subtly into the Church. Because when Constantine um, made Christianity the, the religion of Rome, one of the problems they had was how do we get the pagans into the Church? And one of the things that happened there is this. They created um, comparable functions and activities that were happening in paganism and practices and brought it within the church uh, so that the pagans, as it were, when they came into the church, they found something quite similar uh, as a substitute. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, one of those horrendous um, historical errors and uh, mistakes that were made, but how to correct it uh, at this point in time is, is, I think, that the only answer is to come out of her, as the Bible says, but um, clearly, um, there's no similarity between asking believers to pray on the behalf of ministry and praying to Mary to pray for uh, these kind of things. Uh, people on, in heaven are not told anywhere in the Bible that they have any, any kind of work relative to those who are done on, on, on earth. We're only told that we have to go to Jesus Christ on the behalf of uh, believers, go to Jesus Christ who goes to the Father. But there's no Mary in between there. She's no co-redemptrix, and she's no co-mediatrix. This is all the fable that was created by the Catholic Church, and people are not prepared to look at the Bible to find out the answer, because for one reason or not, as I said before, Brother Nathan, we are so concerned about everything else. We investigate everything else. But when it comes to our eternal destiny, our soul, where we're going, about truth, we seem to have left that to priests and popes and pastors. We're not willing to investigate for ourselves. Consequently, the error continues because people are not prepared to search for themselves. So are you saying tradition can be the enemy of our future destiny? Oh, tradition is the enemy of truth. Uh, you go into the, the, the scriptures, Christ said again and again, you have destroyed uh, uh, following the word because of your tradition. That's what the, the master said again and again. And that was the problem with the Pharisees, depending on their tradition. So when their contra tradition contradicted scripture, they interpreted scripture to fit into the tradition. And in the process, destroyed the power of scripture. And our Lord again and again in the Gospels condemned this thing of tradition replacing scripture. I don't know if you know this, and I don't want to seem as though I'm banging the, the Catholic Church again and again, but they elevate tradition to the same level of, of scripture. So they not only get teachings from Scripture, uh, the what the church fathers said, what the traditions of the past was, become a source of uh, their practice and a source of truth as well. Uh, Baptists believe that the only ultimate source of truth is Scripture, and any tradition that contradicts Scripture must be uh, must be discarded, and Scripture must be the overriding uh, guide for the church. 
You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have 28 minutes left in the program, That's Truth. So go ahead and call. Uh, The phone's ringing right now. So if you want to send in a question, you can send it via WhatsApp or text message, 1-268-782-1454. When the phone line is available, you can call to be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. Maybe you want to see what goes on behind the scenes at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse during this program. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. You can click on the Facebook Live video feed. Not only can you watch, you can listen to the program, but you can also, in real time, interact by sending your questions or suggested topic or a any thoughts or concerns that you might have there in the comment section and they're being monitored and will be sent, passed along to Pastor Murphy. Uh, Pastor, as we uh, continue to talk about decision-making, you mentioned different aspects of wisdom, understanding, knowledge, application, discretion, but you focused about a critical phase there of decision-making. What kind of questions should a person be asking during this critical phase? Well, because uh, this question has to do with the application of your knowledge uh, to a given situation, um, you should be asking some very critical questions uh, when you're now trying to decide what to do. For example, uh, one of the questions you should be asking is this option that I'm going to, (coughs) direction I'm going to go, or this this thing I'm going to apply, is this uh, uh, matter going to violate uh, Scripture in some way? Uh, that should be one of the leading um, guidelines for you as a person because what you're going to do, uh, what decision you're going to make, how does that relate and integrate with Scripture? Is it a violation of Scripture? Secondly, is it a violation of... of, of sorry, the question? Yeah, Pastor, we have a caller from Nevis. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm calling about two verses in, in Acts. Uh-huh. Both chapter 18 and chapter 19. 18 and 19? Uh-huh. Chapter 19, 18, chapter 19. Okay. Chapter 18, verse 4. Uh-huh. Um, not verse 4, but verse 24. Verse 24. All right, let me read that. Acts 18.24 says, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Yeah? Yes, and this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, Uh he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism. Uh Uh-huh. John. Right. And uh, verse, chapter 19, verse 3. Okay. What does it say? And he said unto them, uh-huh. Unto what then were he baptized? Uh-huh. And they said, Unto John's baptism. Now, I hear you say that uh, these who Paul met in Ephesus. Perhaps has been to Jerusalem and was baptized there, and then came back to Ephesus. Uh-huh. But I read these two chapters in Acts, uh-huh. 
seemingly they were baptized by Apollos in Ephesus. Uh-huh. Well, and then yeah. Paul met them after after Apollos left Ephesus uh-huh. and went to Corinth. Uh-huh. Uh, let me see. Is it Corinth? I'm listening. Uh, four. And I don't have any dispute with what you're suggesting. That's not the, 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 the real thing. The, the thing that I'm concerned about that I think we need to understand is that the, the whether it be Apollos or the people that uh, were uh, baptized by John, right, the, the thing is that they're still living under the Old Testament economy. They're not, they're not aware at this point in time of what has taken place in, 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 the, in, in Jerusalem where Christ has been crucified, the Messiah has been crucified, the Spirit has come. Apparently, whatever happened, uh, there's a transitional period where these people came under the doctrine of John. They repented of their sins and went through the baptism of repentance, which indicated they were willing to, they're looking for the Messiah because John was teaching that the Messiah is coming, prepare the way of the Lord. And to prepare the way of the Lord, he said, you know, bring forth fruit of repentance and to prove that you're repenting, you were baptized. So these are people who came into contact with John, whether through Apollos or John's teaching, but they are only knowledgeable of John's baptism, which is the baptism of repentance. So there's a transitional period here. We're not too sure whether they were in Jerusalem or where they were. Uh, it could be that Apollos had um, been the one that got that was in Jerusalem that under John's ministry and got to know about John's teaching, and then it could be that he transferred and he baptized his people in John's name. But the real issue is that they were not uh, fully aware of what had fully taken place, that Christ had now died, uh, for this, the Messiah had come, he had died, and he was resurrected, and of course the Holy Spirit had come on the day of Pentecost. So when Paul met these people, they're still living in the Old Testament mindset, John's baptism of repentance. And that's why uh, he asked them, you know, unto whom were you baptized? And so we baptized uh, into John's baptism, and then uh, of course they had to be rebaptized because they were not uh, baptized in the Christian baptism. That's the point that's being made. So I'm not too sure if Apollos or, or whether they were in Jerusalem is the material matter. It, it the seems to me that it was Apollos uh-huh. who met them in uh-huh. Ephesus. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, but what I'm and saying... Uh, he was preaching. Uh-huh. Apollos was preaching yeah. in Ephesus when he encountered... Aquila and Priscilla. Right, I know, I'm aware of that. And they took him after they hear him. Right. They took him unto them and expounded the way of God more correct. perfectly. Correct, correct. Again, Apollos was preaching the baptism of John. Well, but yeah, but we're to, we, we know of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but we're not told that he's preaching the baptism of John. We're speculating now because we come to these people and they were baptized, uh, and they were baptized by John. But that we're not told anywhere that he was preaching the baptism of John. We're told that he was. He was a very eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, and he was expounding the Old Testament, etc., etc. And then when Aquila and uh, Priscilla met him, husband and wife team, they realized that the man was deficient in his knowledge, uh, and therefore they took him together and, and explained to him the more, um, New Testament truths and clarified certain Old Testament doctrines, etc., 
But the, the, the whole thing is here that he's still living in, a, in the realm of the Old Testament domain. He's not fully aware of all that has taken place and that the New Testament truth he now has to be taught, the New Testament truth about Christian baptism, Lord's resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost. So these two persons who were in contact with the Apostle Paul, tent makers with Paul, they are sitting on the Paul's ministry. Paul has instructed them. They've now met this person, uh, Apollos, who is very gifted, eloquent, but yet his knowledge is very limited uh, in terms of New Testament theology. And they're, they're, they instruct him in that way so that he now becomes more prepared for the work of the ministry. But I, I, I don't, ex- I don't uh, differ with your sentiments as far as whether or not it could have been Apollos the one that did the baptism. I'm not too sure. We're not told that. But the thing is that he's still living on the same level of New Testament truth, and he has to be enlightened by Quill and Priscilla, who inform him about New Testament truth, now that he becomes more, um, becomes more knowledgeable in biblical truth. Verse 25 of chapter 18 says, uh-huh. And this man was instructed uh-huh. in the way of the Lord, right. and being fervent in spirit, they can talk diligently right. the things of the Lord. Correct. Knowing only the baptism, the baptism of, John. of John. Right. And that's why so he had not, up to that point, uh-huh. he didn't have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he knew about Christ, he but. Knew, he knew the scriptures. Yes. And he knew the, the, the preaching of John. Yes. But he didn't know Jesus Christ. Well, he knew the Messiah was coming because that was John was there for, prepared the way of the Lord, the Messiah is coming. But he apparently wasn't aware that the Messiah had already come and already died and uh, was resurrected. And that's where Priscilla and Aquila, who were under Paul's ministry, they now have a clear understanding of the biblical doctrine of, the, of Christ and the resurrection and instructs this young man so that now he becomes more proficient in his theology and being able to do a, a better job in terms of declaring the New Testament truth. So they help him um, become more knowledgeable in New Testament truth. Yes, um, verse 27 says, uh, verse 26, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogues, right. whom when Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla uh-huh. had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Right, that's and it. when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, uh-huh. the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. Yes, but that's because of Aquila now and Priscilla having informed him in the more perfect way of the Lord to give him a better understanding of what took place at Calvary. Now his Old Testament truth is put in perspective and understand that uh, the Old Testament is preparing for the New Testament and actually has been fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now that he's taught by these people, he has no uh, New Testament knowledge of what actually took place. He now goes to this new location, and he's now becoming a great teacher and able to help those believers to be nurtured more in the faith of the Lord because his faith has also been nurtured and increased through the help of Aquila and Priscilla. So he's now mentoring other people because he's been mentored by Aquila and Priscilla. 
Nathan, thank you very much for your call from Nevis. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you calling and interacting with us, and thank you for your question. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 842. Pastor, we have a very interesting question that has come via WhatsApp. Good evening, Pastor. Great program as always. Revelation 17 and verse 4, can this relate to the Vice President Harris being sworn in as Vice President of the United States. Revelation 17.4 says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And let me just give you a little bit of background for those of you who may not be on Facebook or maybe aren't familiar. I know there have been uh, some memes or some photos that have been going around with that verse over top and a picture of her dressed in uh, pearls around her neck and a purple dress. Pastor, is that an appropriate application of Scripture? There's a distortion of Scripture, to be honest with you. It's being sensational and trying to read into Scripture uh, some contemporary situation. If you read the context of the woman, the woman is the great whore, uh, which is the apostate church at the end times. This has nothing to do with any physical woman on planet Earth. Uh, So I think that the person is trying to read a contemporary situation into, into into scripture and that is the danger of being sensational and when you begin to identify uh, the person with scripture here's the danger of that now Nathan 10 years from now when she's out of office or 2 years from now if you are really teaching that this is what this, what's being taught uh, what what becomes of the credibility of the Bible now? Uh, wow. it, it creates problems for people to really believe because, and that's that's what's happened again and again when it comes to people who take the prophetic word and try to identify things that the Bible, uh, you know, not setting dates, times, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, you know, people thought that Hitler was the Antichrist. Uh, uh, Napoleon was the Antichrist. And the reason why they've done that, they took took the name of these men and used the Hebrew letters and the Greek letters and came to 666. So they came to the conclusion. <laughs> I think they even thought that Reagan at one time was the Antichrist as well because they took his name and, uh, you know. Uh, this is the, the we we got to avoid this this speculation. And uh, as, as the end time comes closer to an end, it will become clearer and clearer. Uh, what biblical prophecy is all about. But let's not try to read too much into it because it can do great discredit to Scripture. I have no doubt in my mind that Revelation 74 has nothing to do with um, the the Vice President of the States of America. Now, bringing it home even further, I've seen um, believers in our churches, in conservative churches here in Antigua, throughout the Caribbean, uh, throughout the U.S., who are passing on that type of information, whether it be by email or on Facebook. What should I, as a believer who is looking at life through a biblical worldview, and I may not agree with the entities that are in control in my country at this at any given time, whatever country you're listening from, but what should I do as a born-again believer? Should I pass that information along? Look, I think one of the biggest needs is to have a grasp of, uh, take, to take this particular one, is to have a, a kind of a, a panoramic grasp of Bible prophecy. You've got to know what the woman is in the book of Revelation. And I think that there, if you study Bible prophecy, the identity marks of that particular person. For example, she has the, the blood of the saints 
on her hand, the martyrs. There's only one person, one, one, one institution that has the blood of the martyrs on it. And, and so, uh, so I think that if you, it's very, very clear that this is um, distortion, uh, this is being sensational, this is out of context, um, that should end with you. You should never pass it on. Uh, whether you like the person or not, or you think the political, you like the political that's immaterial. The error must stop at you. You must not perpetuate the, the the error by repeating it again and again. And, and by the way, this can lead to, to a lot of, um, this can lead to people um, <laughs> um, having all kinds of um, ignoble concepts, uh, concepts and actually um, in their own reading of the Bible could cause them to have a distorted view of Scripture as well. So it doesn't help the situation by repeating error again and again and again and again. If you know it's error, just let it end with you. Uh, but don't don't pass it on and pass it on and pass it on because it doesn't help the situation. It just compounds the situation and makes it much more darkened. Very practical advice in this day and age where we all have a platform, whether it be email or whether it be uh, Facebook. You don't have to have your own radio program. You can still share a lot of information. We need to be sure that we're sharing things that are true and that are based on biblical fact. Past, go ahead. No, no. I mean, there's so many conspiracy theories that people need to be aware of. I mean, it's not that I'm not aware of some of them, but uh, you know, you have to use discretion and to understand what is happening. The world is so divided politically, and you've got to you, you've got to understand what is happening, and that's why you have to have a, a, a global perspective on on, on on news, and you're going to have a, a, um, a objective perspective as well. We listen to both sides, don't listen to one side, listen to both sides, and then weigh the evidence. Uh, I think that's what's needed. But too many times, the polarization, the political polarization, uh, kind of blinds people to any kind of objectivity, and it becomes so subjective. And, and they only see they, they try to make the the, the the side they don't like look the worst, yeah. you know. And I think that is not balance, and I think it leads to a lot of distortion, and in the long term, it leads to disharmony and division uh, unnecessarily. Can it lead to division within the body of Christ? Of course. Uh, I remember, um, I mean, I know this, that this, I know of one church here in Antigua that was split over the, uh, between the division between the UPP and the, and the, and the uh, Labour Party. People in the church were so, such a, a um, opposite ends to, to different poles, and uh, it, it led to a, a real demise of the church. As a matter of fact, the church, I understand, used to have services on Sunday night, and then it could only have service on Sunday morning. Uh, but that gives you the idea of how strong politics is in Antigua. And I don't feel that that kind of division is right within the church. We're not following politicians, we're following Christ. doesn't mean you, you, should have, you, you can't have political loyalties, but your first loyalty is to Christ, it's not to the politics or political party. And you need to be able to see when your political party is doing wrong or going in the wrong direction. You need to be able to take a stand. You can't support everything that is that in a political party because you belong to it. You have to use uh, discretion objectivity in this regard. Pastor, a WhatsApp question that's come from the Caribbean. I've heard of a Pentecostal member justifying female pastors using Aquila. Were these ladies actual pastors? It's very, very clear that Aquila and Priscilla are not pastors. In no way can you find it anywhere in Scripture. They're a couple, a husband and wife couple, 
and they're informed biblically, and they meet this man, Apollos, uh, who is very knowledgeable in Old Testament, very eloquent with his speech. They see him as a potential uh, minister in terms of being able to help people as a teacher, and they take him under their wings, and they instruct him more perfectly in the way of God. Of course, that has to do with teaching him New Testament truth. He becomes more equipped now for the teaching ministry. He goes off and he helps people. They're not pastoring a church. They're tent makers. They're not uh, having a a, a church. They're just uh, business people who are Christians and are using their influence to help other believers. Uh, So there's no, no biblical... Look, when people want to do something, they'll always find some excuse to do it and they always distort scripture and look for things they they they, they have a preconceived uh notion and they go to scripture to support that notion they don't look to scripture to see if if something is correct they've already have a preconceived idea this has to be right so now what they do the search for scripture that was seen to support that and that is reversing the whole process by which you do exposition uh and uh so there's no basis for that anywhere in the Bible. And again, that would contradict what the Apostle Paul says in Timothy, right? Well, Paul roots the leadership role in the church and in the home to two things. I keep repeating this. He reaches it to the order of creation, that man was created first, and to the fall. Those things never change. Those things are not cultural. Those are transcultural. So we, we can't... We can't in order to accommodate the modern trend, and this is what it is, is a a cultural trend that is now being imposed in the church. And the church finds itself where it's either going to fight against culture and what culture is pushing, or it's going to take remain loyal to the scripture. Unfortunately, the pressure that is being bring to bear against the church, and because the church is intimidated uh, by being labeled, it has now, as it were, become a wimp and now uh, yielding to the pressure that is being brought upon it by these social commentators. And I think it's a grave mistake because when you yield at one point, it's just a matter before you yield at another point. It's a time to take the stand for truth and uh, not to compromise that truth. As Luther said, God helping me can do no other. So do I understand you right to say that you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say? Oh, of course. (laughs) But then how do you know that the Bible's true? Well, again... the the misuse of the Bible is not a basis for questioning the integrity of Scripture. There are many, many reasons we know that the Bible is true. I'll give you one very, very common. Take Bible prophecy, for example. I can s- sit with anybody and show you prophecy that was prophesied 800, 900 years before and how it's come to fulfillment. Uh, not one passage, 200 passages, 300 passages. Prophecies are thousands of prophecies that were made way before. That is one. one in, then there's also archaeological support. There's never been an archaeological discovery that, that, that contradicts the historical history of the Old Testament or the New Testament in terms of the location and places. As a matter of fact, people use the Bible the, the archaeology to find the location of these things. Uh, that's, that's enough, and of course, the transformative effect, effect of the Bible. No other book has ever had the kind of effect that the Bible has had on the lives and transformed people. I mean, those are just... The other thing, of course, of course, is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think that is the final, uh, as far as the Christian is concerned. He completely endorsed the Old Testament. And, of course, he promised that the Holy Spirit would be given so that the the disciples would have all things brought to their memory. So I, I, and those are four fundamental reasons why the Bible is the Word of God. Tom Cross, the Eastern Caribbean, is 854. Um, 
Pastor, a follow-up question in relation to a question earlier. If Mary can't do anything for us, what about when Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem and had to flee to Egypt? Wasn't she doing something for God? Sorry, I don't know who the person is asking this question, but clearly uh, Mary was alive then. That was a, a contemporary situation. That's something completely different. You're not dealing with a, uh, a, a you're dealing with a person who has already lived on Earth and gone on. So we're not dealing with the same. You're dealing with apples and pears. You're not dealing with the same scenario. You're dealing with an earthly situation where she was there in person, as part of God's plan for Christ to be born and to be protected. And she used her judgment, and of course Joseph took her down into Egypt. Uh, as that, uh, so, so we're not dealing with the. But Mary fulfilled her role, and a blessed role it was, being the agent that would become the means of Christ being born. And she was willing to surrender herself to be used of God in that capacity. And God honors her, so that you know, whenever we read the Bible uh, during the holiday Christmas season, Mary's name is mentioned. Her name is honored. In that regard, but we must not honor her behold, be above what she is. She's just a human being, like you are, and a human being. As a matter of fact, Mary said she rejoiced in God, her Savior. Okay, so <laughs> she is, needed a savior. She needed a savior, so she recognized that that she needed a savior. Mary was a sinner like anybody else. Okay, she was born with a sinful nature. That's the biblical truth. The mythology of creating uh, a deity out of Mary is part of the mythology that goes from paganism. And you'll find that, again, get Alexander Hislop's book, The Two Babylons, and you'll see the mother and child theme that runs through paganism, runs right through the, the Catholicism as well. It was taken out of paganism and put into Catholicism. So, But you don't have to take my word for it. The, the, there's an exhaustive study called The Two Babylons, and I think if you read that book, it becomes very, very clear how a lot of things that have happened has entered the church, and uh, now to reverse that creates uh, problems because people have accepted these traditions, and people don't seem to be prepared to investigate the Bible itself. Um, they seem to, to go along with whatever the priest, priest or the pastor or the bishop says. And for the listener who's saying, but pastor... I want to have a right relationship with God, and in order to do that, I pray to Mary or through Mary. Is that appropriate? All I can tell you, your prayer is in vain. Uh, it's not going beyond the, the ceiling. I can guarantee you that. Unless you're praying to Jesus Christ and praying to God through Jesus Christ, no prayer ascends up to God other than through His Son. And I want to repeat this, you know. The reason why Christ became a man is to fulfill that uh, mediator role. He, in all points, tempted like as we are, so that he might be a sympathetic high priest. That's why he was equipped to become the high priest before God. Uh, and I can't understand why people miss this. That's why he had to become a man, not just to die on the cross, but so that he may be a sympathetic high A, a priest is one that goes before God on the behalf of man. And no one is more adequately qualified than Jesus Christ. He's God in nature. He's also got the human nature. And that is where his connection, he can take hold of God and take hold of man at the same time. He's the perfect intercessor. Why do we need to create uh, another layer that God doesn't recognize? How can I know for sure that I have a right relationship with God or that I'm a Christian? The only way that you could actually know that is did you ever come to a point where you were convicted of your sin in your life and uh, you were brought to the point of repentance and you recognize that Jesus Christ was the own, only sole way 
to uh, a relationship with God. So you repented of your sins, and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Can you remember a day when you did that? I didn't ask if you were baptized. I didn't ask if you went to church. Can you remember a day when you were convicted by the Holy Spirit, you repented of your sins, and you exercised faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And right now, the only thing you are trusting is Christ and Christ alone. If you can answer the affirmative of those questions, I can say to you, sir, I can say to you, madam, you are a true born-again believer. Does that mean that I will be above sin? No. Uh, again, you're going to the book of Romans, chapter 6. It's very, very clear that we will always have a battle because we still have the sin nature. The thing that we got to remember, that we don't only have a sin nature, we have a, a new nature that's implanted in the believer. And uh, what we have is a struggle between the old nature and the new nature. And the Holy Spirit is there to assist us in the whole matter of this great, great battle. So it's not to mean that we'll never commit sin. But where we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father who's called Jesus Christ. See? As a new believer, where would you suggest that I begin reading my Bible? I would suggest that you begin with the Gospel of John. I think that that's the general recommend. It's a very simple gospel, simple words, uh, simple illustrations, and I think that would be a good place to start. Thank you very much for listening to That's Truth tonight. Be sure you join us next week as we, Lord willing, pick up our topic of making wise decisions as we begin the year 2021. Keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.